back this is the northern minor podcast the week of october 17th and i am your host matthew keevil we are once again brought to you by our loyal sponsor the yukon mining alliance please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca and check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in the yukon territory uh so we've got a good show for you this week uh once again leslie will be back with the geology corner this week we're talking about uh sediment hosted copper deposits specifically referring to uh robert friedland's ivanhoe mines recently released a new uh resource update at their kamoa project in the democratic republic of congo so leslie will get into a little bit of the uh mineralizing events and uh scientific terminology on sediment hosted copper we'll talk about uh the kahula discovery that ivanhoe made uh, and the updated resource. And there's also um, our senior staff writer out of Toronto, Trish Saywell, wrote a really great article on this too. So surf by the website, hit that subscribe button. It's a great deal. Uh, you also get access to our Canadian Minds Handbook, which is a great compendium of resource projects worldwide. Uh, so yeah, So and then also the other fun thing I have um, is I hit the road uh, this week and uh, attended Benchmark Mineral Intelligence's uh, sort of lithium-ion battery supply chain seminar. Uh, we talked to some electric vehicle um, producers and analysts, um, and we sit down with managing director of Benchmark, Simon Moores, and we talk lithium, we talk graphite, and we talk cobalt, and cobalt's pretty interesting. Uh, so there's a double mention of the DRC this week because there's also a little bit of concern about uh, supply security in terms of cobalt uh, due to sociopolitical issues <laughs> in the DRC. So we'll get into that with Simon Moores a little bit later. Uh, as far as timeline, we'll hit uh, Leslie's Geology Corner first, uh, then we'll surf over and uh, have a chat with Simon. And Morris from Benchmark. And just to wrap the show up, I also have a little bit of insight. Uh, PwC Pricewaterhouse Cooper released a, their junior mining report uh, last week, uh, and it had some interesting uh, insights on uh, financings, cash positions, sort of the health of the Toronto Venture Exchange. So I'll wrap the show up with a little bit of commentary on that. Um, but first, let's just run through uh, our macro real quick here because uh, we do have a jam packed show. Um, so I just wanted to uh, touch base. We'll start as we do with gold. Uh, gold last week was fairly uh, muted. It was range bound. Uh, we saw a high midweek of about 1000 $263 per ounce, uh, and then we are closed around the same level we've seen recently in the 1250s. So we closed at around $1,256 per ounce. Uh, so fairly muted moves, uh, $10 an ounce swing, um, and that's about where we are at the time of recording. Uh, silver, meanwhile, was at $17 and around 47 cents per ounce. Uh, copper was at $2.10 per pound, while West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was at $50.37 per barrel. A couple um, just uh, things to watch out for this week in terms of... Uh, of uh, macroeconomic reporting. Uh, Canadian manufacturing sales are due out on Tuesday. Uh, the Bank of Canada, Canada is expected to announce its policy rate on Wednesday. Um, and then retail sales and the consumer price index for Canada will be out on Friday. Uh, in terms of the BRICS, uh, Brazil retail sales will be released on Tuesday. Uh, China industrial production, retail sales, and third quarter GDP is set for late tomorrow. So late Tuesday night, I believe. Um, 
And then we have a big whack of S&P 500 company earnings coming up, uh, Bank of America, some of the big uh, sort of uh, indicator companies in the U.S. So we'll watch that. Um, as always, that'll have impact on the federal open market committee's move towards interest rates. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, as we said, gold's near a four-month low right now. Um, that's a lot due to some of the analyst notes uh, mentioned to me that um, data showed head funds cutting bullish bets on gold amid a prolonged slump. Uh, the metal uh, gold is down four percent percent this month, uh, parring the year's advance uh, to 8% on prospects for highest U- higher U.S. borrowing costs. Um, and there's also a rising expectation of interest rate hikes. So that's just some stuff to watch out for this week. There's a lot of uh, macro data coming down. So we'll have uh, dig into that a little more deeply next week after I have a uh, chance to crunch some of the numbers. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's dig right into uh, some awesome geology corner with Leslie. Uh, this again is covering uh, cop- uh, sediment hosted copper deposits and we'll talk specifically about uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Robert Freeland's Ivanhoe Mines. And welcome. I still haven't got the theme song. I tried. You know what I tried to do? This is the geology corner by the way. He knows, Matt. I know. I tried and I had like sort of a rock riff and then I tried to put like uh, drill sounds behind it and it sounded like a horror mansion. Like it was the most frightening thing I've ever heard. I'm like, we can't use this. It sounds like the entrance to a haunted house. Like I'm like, it's like... <laughs> I'm like, oh god, oh no, god! It sounds like the beginning of a saw. Volcanoes just spewing volcanoes, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to work on the uh, yeah. to produce some audio for the uh, entry <laughs> to the geology corner. Actually, but, I don't know. Just keep coming up with new random stuff. Yeah, make fun of it every week. It'd just be perfect. Do, do different stuff every week. Yeah. So we are back uh, with Leslie at the geology corner. Um, and what do you have for us this week? Well, this week, um, because Ivanhoe put out their maiden resource for Kakula. Yep. in the DRC, I thought that I'd talk a little bit about sedimentary copper t- deposits. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. That's that's yeah, and very topical. I mean, uh, uh, we uh, funny enough, you, you later in the podcast, I have some audio with Simon later. Morris from Benchmark Minerals, and we talk about yes. cobalt, which is very uh, apropos for the DRC, because uh, before we get into the geology corner, I'll just... Uh, riff a little bit. There's a bit of a constitutional crisis going on in the DRC right now where the uh, incumbent um, uh, regime refuses to leave as as oft happens in African nations. Um, so there's kind of a, a, a little bit of a whispering of potential not civil i don't want to say civil war and cause like some sort of panic or something but like like there's like some uh, discord Ah. uh, with with the current regime and and the constitution stuff so that was one of the things that we'll touch on a bit later in the show um with simon and uh we'll talk about some specialty metals like lithium and stuff but uh one of the things we'll talk about is cobalt in the drc but this is the geology corner so we'll talk rocks we'll get into the politics of it <laughs> yeah no there's sedimentary uh hosted copper deposits does contain uranium i'm uranium my god what's wrong with me i'm still in this <laughs> uranium mode but it contains cobalt and rhenium and zinc and you name it so <clears throat> geology corner um realistically if you think that geology is boring which some people kind of do for some crazy reason not me uh just wait until you hear about sedimentary hosted copper deposits because <laughs> they actually happen to be the dullest deposit on oh, the no. planet. <laughs> they really are. Um, my case in point, of course, being is that most of them formed around 800 million-ish years ago in the Proterozoic. So this was a time in Earth's history that scientists often refer to as the boring billion, the Earth's middle ages, and get this, 
the dullest time on earth. <laughs> I feel bad for these deposits. I know. It's like, it's like they just get, they just get like just totally bashed in the I scientific know. community. It's like, you're the worst. Well, they're basically blankets, giant blankets of copper, right? Cobalt, uranium, and they extend out as far as like you could possibly see. So most of them, like we mentioned, are in Zambia and the DRC. So I always say that, you know, where the beautiful sunsets out there are more likely attributed to the glow cast from the red metal, <laughs> um, bouncing off the red metal. And that, of course, everybody is uh, scientific facts. Scientific facts. Yes. The more you know. And the reason why these deposits are so insanely huge is because the conditions that they formed in were actually really mundane, thus the boring. Um, and to really actually get everyone to understand where I'm coming from with all this, we got to shoot back to my favorite time on Earth. Which happens to be the Jurassic Archean. Archean. I, I always like, talk I about the like Archean. I thought he was going to get it. But okay, so the Archean guys to me was really like the A list party in Earth's history, okay? It was banging. It was like the Earth back then was just like one hot mess. And most of the world's greatest metal districts were kind of making their star performance. We're talking about billions of years ago. It was amazing. So whereas the Proterozoic that followed, it was actually just kind of like the hangover, I call it. They're just chilling. Because it was like, yeah, it was an eon of time when like all the pieces of the Earth's crust kind of came together into one big supercontinent called Rodinia. Okay. And nothing happened. So when you're dating this, what what are we talking here? Um, We're talking about like... I don't know, 1.1 billion years, but... For the Archean or for the The Archean is like 2 billion plus. And then the hangover period may be around like, I don't know, 1.5 billion to 700 million years ago. It's a long party. It's just so boring. So (laughs) there was Rodinia, you know, the Earth was sitting there in this big old thing hovering around the Earth's equator. And the Earth was just there holding it together, living today for another chance of tomorrow. Which is basically <laughs> like every other Friday. But or these, Saturday these very calm conditions gave birth to very large base metal deposits. Yeah, because get yeah. this what happened was is that so the Earth was just sitting there being all boring. And the first sign that the Earth was alive, coming out of its hangover a little bit, kind of began in the Neo Proterozoic. So, like around that 1 billion um, period. And that was when Robin- Rodinia started to like break up. And as it was breaking up, all these shallow seas were started to form, okay? And biological life began to take hold and oxygen began to concentrate in the atmosphere and the seas being so shallow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're able to evaporate a lot more. Okay. Now, with evaporation comes rain. With rain comes a ton of erosion. Of erosion, yeah. Now, okay, this is the key point, erosion. Really, really important in the history of that time. Okay. Because with erosion... Um, you have like these metal-rich Archean crusts, and they're eroding literally into these like you know shallow saline seas. Okay. Yep. Salty. Guys, this is like the most perfect condition for sedimentary-hosted copper deposits. It's, it's just like spreading. the womb yeah, yeah. of of these deposits. So think about it. Um, you have all these metals in these large saline brains, right? Um, and under these vast seas, all the metals um, were leached out of the sediments by these oxidized saline groundwaters. That makes sense. Right. And so yeah. as the sedimentary layers kept building, building, all the sedimentary layers beneath were compacted. And that actually squeezed the metal-rich groundwater up into okay. different horizons. Okay. Get it? Yep. Get it? In other scenarios, Continuous of course. Continuous horizons, like 
just yeah. big long. It's just like thing. if you if you if you had like a piece of cake and you start smushing it, all the yeah. delicious whipped cream and cherries <laughs> yeah, would come out sense. the sides, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what was happening. Um, in other scenarios, of course, these groundwaters followed currents of gravity, you know, whereby there's nearby uplift, and so the water just kind of naturally flows in different parts of the stratigraphy, or they were recirculated up higher into the crust by like cracks and fractures, faults. Whatever. But whatever that drove these waters, whenever they hit a reducing sedimentary layer, like an organic rich shale, all the metals kind of dumped out and formed these blankets of sulfides. Okay? Okay. And then another blanket. And another blanket. Yeah. Okay? And this went on for like 250 million years. It was seriously Very like boring. Very a groundhog boring. day into eternity. <laughs> well, right? that's kind of like, yeah. I mean, over Bill Murray did kick over. it eventually, but it went on for a long time. <laughs> right. So eventually, you know, here we are, the removal of greenhouse gases from all that rain that created all that erosion, blah, blah, blah. And then you had all this kick in biological life. It seriously spiraled the earth into a massive cooling period called snowball earth. Earth, right? Snowball Earth. Yeah, around 650 million years ago, which pretty much marks the end of the Proterozoic. So in turn, Snowball Earth, right, triggered multicellular life, multicellular life, created Adam and Eve, and shabam, in a blink of an eye, here we are today. Wow. So that's kind of like the history of the world in a really quick little shot. <laughs> in relation to sediment-hosted copper deposits right. in the DRC. Yeah. yeah, so some of the world's largest sediment-hosted copper deposits that we can find today happens to be Kupfer Schieffer. Kupfer Schieffer. Mm -hmm. Kupfer yeah. In Poland. Um, Anyak in Afghanistan. White Pine in Michigan. Um, but of course, obviously, the most concentrated district is the Zambian and Congolese copper belts in Africa. Which, as you know, has been like a playground for Ivanhoe Mines. Mm -hmm. So, And they um, just released their new resource, which Trish covered in the paper, if anybody wants to catch that. Yeah. Maybe there's a little analyst commentary and some goodies in there. It's so, so good. Trish yeah. did such a wonderful job covering it. So Kamoa Kukula, I mean, these this deposit is just absolutely huge. Um, the maiden resource for Kukula bumped up total indicated resources between the two deposits to 944 million tons of 2.8% copper. Wow. So that's 59 billion pounds of copper, and that's only seriously scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. So yeah, check out Trisha's article on it. It's something really quite extraordinary. This deposit is born out of something so extraordinarily dull. Now, linking it back to what you said about the formation of these deposits, I noticed in, in Ivanhoe's press releases, they often, this might just be Kamoa, but it, it, it maybe Kukula as well. These long, almost like a table, like a long, yeah, like very I said, continuous, it's like a yeah, it's like, like a, a blanket that goes on for, into the sunset. Do we have? Do you know the uh, extent of Kukulinet, like the lateral, the strike length on the thing? I have no idea. We'll have to look that up because I bet it's pretty far. It's like kilometers. It's, it's, it's kilometers. Yeah, I think yeah. it's like yeah. I think Kukula is like fifteen kilometers or more from Kamoa, and then even that is like goes beyond. Up so these beyond. super exciting deposits were born out of this like old folks' home age of earth or like yeah. <laughs> everybody yeah. was like really slowly rolling around in and that's why they're so geological lit. wheelchairs no i always think of it like somebody just sitting on your couch forever and eating like cheesy and, and just slowly expanding yeah, the worst visual ever yeah. so the thing is i always ask myself really and i and i seriously lie awake at night thinking about this is why the heck is there so much copper in that particular region of the world in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I seen what made those basins so productive. And I looked into it. 
Okay. And apparently the basement rocks within the Congolese belts are super deformed granites. So some geologists believe that the copper may have originally came from huge porphyry systems that eroded away into the sedimentary basin. Over the boring time. Or before the boring time? Archean. Archean. Okay, so during the party, the shit went down. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there we go. (laughs) Maybe originally. There's that buzzword again, Archean porphyries. It's like, you know, the the ball just drops in the geology corner there on that one. But anyway, so otherwise, you know, metals are usually just leached from volcanics or other rocks which happen to be slightly elevated in copper. And if you have enough time, you can easily concentrate a spectacular amount. Huh, that's so cool. So the best way to explore for these deposits um, is exactly what Ivano has actually done at Kamoa. Okay. And that is just to think differently. So instead of keeping to one specific you know, time horizon that's known to be a perfect chemical trap for these metal-rich brines, um, Ivanhoe stepped outwards into other parts of the rock record and found new traps, Okay, which is basically Kamoa and Kukula. So um, David Broughton, who's the VP of Exploration for Ivanhoe Mines, and he was actually one of the main guys who found Kamoa, mm-hmm. um, he came up to our project years and years ago when I was working on a sediment-hosted copper deposit in the Northwest Territories. Oh, okay. Yeah, and at the time, uh, David was finishing his doctorate, and he was consulting part-time for Freeport. And we were sitting on the skid of a helicopter. We were looking out into the, you know, the beautiful northern landscape. When suddenly he, he picks up a rock, right? And he tosses it. And then he gets up, walks over to where the rock is and starts poking around. I said, David, what are you doing? <laughs> he sits back down. He says, Leslie, that's how you find a sediment-hosted copper deposit in the DRC. No <laughs> you joke. throw a rock and go over and... <laughs> Just throw stuff. From the helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, so I guess that's another way you can find them too. And that's uh, this week's Geology Rock Corner. And we're back. And yeah, Leslie mentioned also, we I don't know if we dug into it too much, but we've got a lot of inquiries actually coming in on email uh, with people kind of asking questions for the Geology Corner and providing some ideas on things we can talk about. So please do. We love uh, we love the interactivity of uh, of what the podcast brings. So if, if you have questions, uh, you could submit, it, uh, submit them via Twitter or by email. Um, it's lstokes at northernminer.com. Uh, Leslie's on Twitter at northerngeo. Uh, I am mkeevil at northernminer.com. And I am on Twitter at Matthew Keevil. So fire us some questions if you'd like, uh, if you have a, a deposit type or a, an exploration story, etc., that you want us to take a look at, uh, focus in on the geology corner a little bit. We love to do that. And while we're on the topic, please do surf by. Um, iTunes and give us a rating, uh, like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, and check out our YouTube channel, which is uh, getting back in action. We're uh, providing more video content. There's a few interviews up there from my trip to the Yukon recently. Um, I believe one with Gold Corp and one with Attack Resources, so you can uh, check those out. Um, and then, yeah, let's move right into uh, our next segment, which is uh, I had a chance to sit down with Simon Moores, as mentioned, uh, from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. It's about a 10-minute chat, uh, and we cover some uh, cool things, including uh, the different types of lithium products, um, supply demand fundamentals. We get into graphite and talk about the 2012 graphite boom and why Simon thinks maybe there might be a chance that it it swings around again, the graphite market. And then as mentioned, we do talk cobalt and those supply side concerns. Um, So yeah, without further ado, let's uh, let's jump right in with Simon. um, And I'll see you on the other side with uh, a little bit of insight from PwC on junior markets. This is Matthew Keeble with the Northern Miner, and we're on site in downtown Vancouver with Simon Moores, CEO of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. 
Uh, so just to start off, Simon, maybe a little background on what Benchmark is and what you guys do. Yeah, so we're a price assessment company and we specialize in raw materials for the lithium-ion battery industry, lithium, graphite, and we're soon getting into cobalt. And well, those are some really topical minerals. So it's uh, it's good to have you with us today. Maybe let's start with the big headliner, which is lithium. Um, we've heard a lot about it recently. Um, it's been coming onto the Toronto Venture Exchange, onto the uh, TSX a lot, and we've seen companies launching products in Nevada, South America. Um, so sort of what's the what's launched this huge interest in in lithium over let's say the past two years? It's the price spike, really. You know, lithium prices have gone up four x, five x inside of China. Contracts are catching up outside of China. And while the lithium carbonate price has softened in the last three months, hydroxide continues to be strong. And it's basically because of a fundamental supply and demand mismatch in the industry that has to be solved by uh, existing producers expanding, but also new uh, mines coming on stream. And the lithium industry really hasn't um, seen that before. And, and you hear the names like Tesla and, and some of the really flashy technologies associated with this. So so what is the connection there with lithium and let's say uh, the batteries and the cars and, and why you think it's so exciting moving forward? Well, the connection with Tesla is they're going to need lithium to make their cars work. Yeah. You know, lithium-ion batteries by namesake. Um, there's more graphite in a lithium-ion battery than uh, lithium. But they are two critical raw materials from a volume perspective in the, in the battery. And... Yeah, if, if Tesla are going to build all the cars they say they are, if they're going to have a gigafactory at 35 gigawatt hours, which is half of the size of the lithium-ion battery market last year, they're going to need a lot more lithium, and it's also battery-grade lithium, uh, carbonate and hydroxide. So a key takeaway point is it's not a commodity, it's a speciality mineral, and you can't use all of the, the lithium mined extracted in a battery. You've got to be a specialist processor and producer as well. Now, you used two terms there that, that we run across in lithium quite a bit, but maybe our listeners aren't quite as familiar with, and that's the difference between hydroxide and a carbonate. And a carbonate, you see the LCE, I guess, is sort of a lithium carbon carbonate equivalent. Um, so maybe just a little bit of color briefly on, on what exactly those products are. Yeah, so the, the lithium term, the LCE term, is lithium carbonate equivalent. It's a nice way to calculate all the lithium chemicals produced into one common factor. And it's just a good way to understand it. But really, lithium is a chemical market. It's a fragmented market. And the top two chemicals in that sector are carbonate and hydroxide. And they're also both the chemicals that are used in batteries. And is there sort of a different supply di- demand dynamic between the two? Like, would, would there be more of a demand for hydroxide? And how does the pricing work? Yeah, so uh, there is a slightly different demand dynamic, mainly because they're all coming from the same source um, pretty much, but it's the processing that counts. So essentially a lot of the hydroxide uh, is processed in China using hard rock sources, for example. Um, So really it's not a case just where the mines are, it's where the processing plants are. And they do have their own different pricing dynamic, but they're fundamentally priced in the same way. Private contracts between buyer and seller, they're not exchange traded, it's an opaque market, um, and you know, this is why Benchmark collects prices and does price assessments on a monthly basis because we feel the market, uh, both sides of the users and buyers will need this going forward. And so people uh, who, who maybe trade on the Toronto Exchange or, or, or things or related exchanges might be familiar with Clayton Valley, Nevada, Brines versus Hard Rock. And you, and you just mentioned Hard Rock. Um, so maybe a little bit of, um, again, a color on what the difference sort of is between, I think it's Spodumen is what yeah. they call it, and versus Brines. Yeah, so uh, brines are a liquid form of uh, mineralization and they're extracted in a very different way, mainly in South America, mainly in Chile and Argentina. 
and they are liquids that are pumped onto a surface and evaporated over a long period of time uh, to get a, a mineral liquor that's then processed and you get lithium carbonate from that. Um, spodumene is different, it's more like traditional mining. You're mining that, you're, you're crushing the rock, you're, you're concentrating it, then you're sending it to a chemical plant to really get the same uh, and chemical that the, the brines would get. Very different extraction process, very different uh, processing, but ultimately you get pretty much the same end product. And, and for investors who are maybe looking at the lithium space, uh, say they're looking at a company and one company has a brine project and one company has a hard rock project, what sort of would you say to them about the process to getting those into production? I would say the brine issue that the industry has is it's not a mining game, it's a chemical processing game. So um, that's usually the hardest uh, jump to make from from uh, raising capital in a mining-friendly uh, jurisdiction like uh, Toronto or Vancouver. But then to get it into production, you need to be a chemical engineer. So that's the big jump you have to make. In terms of the spodumene side of things, it's traditional mining. And really, you're going to get an offtake, you're going to get a Chinese offtake, um, and that will solve your chemical processing. And, and during your presentation earlier today, you did bring China up quite a bit in terms of, of what they're supplying, especially in terms of hydroxides. Um, so why is China so important in this equation? Because 75% of lithium-ion battery demand, new battery demand, is coming from China. Okay. Uh, Tesla Gigafactory is 35 gigawatt hours at the moment. It's going to be bigger, Tesla say. That's the headline that people have been holding on to, but more is happening in China. And that's the critical factor that's going to drive this raw material demand. While Tesla will be important, China will be the biggest uh, fish in the, in the room. And, and maybe uh, one of the things I want to touch on, uh, our listeners are probably familiar with graphite back from 2012. I think that's when we actually met each other was when we were, we were covering graphite. Um, but uh, it's sort of, it's coming around again. And, and same with lithium. We will mention there was a bit of a lithium boom back in 2010 as well. Um, but what's, uh, what's, what's sort of the uh, outlook on graphite right now that's making it come around again as a topic of conversation in the investment community? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, actually, because graphite... Um, you're right, had the boom just after lithium, uh, mainly because of a price spike anyway, for slightly different reasons. But um, people are becoming wise that graphite is needed, and natural graphite will be the dominant uh, product. That's what we believe at Benchmark, that's what we see in the market. And people understand now that, all right, you might be able to mine graphite, but can you process that into a, 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 a on-spec product that people like LG Chem or Hitachi Chemical will be able to buy consistently at large volumes? And these volumes are double, treble what they are today. Uh, that's the challenge for the graphite industry. I think investors know graphite is going to be needed, but the question they always try to ask is, well, will they make that chemical spec product, that spherical graphite product? Mm -hmm. That's still something the industry has to work out. Okay. Okay. And so now it's becoming, again, like we said about many of these things, a supply-demand question really is, is what we're looking at. Um, and then the last one I wanted to touch on is something that Benchmark's new to as well, and that's cobalt. Um, and it's sort of been making headlines recently due to uh, some sociopolitical problems in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which accounts for a large amount of the supply. Um, so maybe just a little bit of a primer for our listeners on cobalt, because uh, many people might not even be familiar with it at all. Cobalt's an interesting one because... You know, you look at the price on the LME, it's a cobalt metal price, but it's a cobalt chemical that's used in batteries. Um, the, the dominant market in the cobalt space is uh, is the battery market. That's now 45% of demand. So you've really got, from a, a, a market perspective, a, a big difference between um, cobalt evolving from its industrial roots used in steel to actually being used in batteries and high-tech products. Now, the biggest problem is the DRC. Well, it's, it's a problem because not necessarily because they're not going to get future supply from there, but just because a small percentage is used, under 15% of supply is mined, sorry, 
uh, from um, child labour and uh, illegal mining sources. And that is a big CSR, a corporate responsibility problem for the Silicon Valley guys. And really that's going to be a driver of change in the industry. Um, but for us, it's a case of not getting rid of Congo Cobalt, DRC Cobalt. It's really cleaning that industry up, making it a bit more professional, getting the big miners on board for that, and also developing new sources outside of the DRC. Because the battery industry now is coming of age, and it's going to need big volume. And, and is there sort of, uh, obviously, that section of Africa, you see a lot of cobalt production. Is there anywhere else in the world that's prospective that uh, companies might start to look for future cobalt uh, uh, supply? It's a really interesting one because uh, cobalt isn't very common. Yeah. You know, not lithium is abundant, graphite is abundant, uh, cobalt isn't. And it's always attached to usually nickel and copper deposits. But really, you've got to look at the Canadians. You have to look at where those Canadian juniors are prospecting and, and developing. You've got to look at where, what's happening in Australia as well. And there's not many of them. So list, list the cobalt guys, pick them out, compare them, do usual due diligence. Uh, but the question, you know, we are now in a situation where um, more cobalt mines are going to be needed um, for, for various factors. And welcome back to studio. It's always uh, it's great to talk to Simon because he's been uh, around that specialty metal space, especially in terms of uh, of growing uh, renewables and uh, electric vehicles and stuff for quite a long time. And uh, as mentioned in the interview there, I actually met him uh, probably back in 2012 when we were both sort of covering that original graphite uh, graphite rush that we saw back uh, back in the day. So uh, he's done very well with Benchmark, and it's, uh, it's an interesting service. Uh, you can check out uh, pricing on, as he said, uh, quote-unquote, more opaque markets for industrial materials that uh, might not be so readily available uh, through uh, a quick internet search or anything like that. So uh, surf over, check out Benchmark. Uh, it's always great to have Simon on the show. We'll, uh, we'll try to get him on uh, on again and uh, see how the, uh, the lithium, cobalt, and graphite uh, markets are are uh, <clears throat> are uh, going heading into the new year here um in the end yeah i just wanted to quickly uh bounce in for our yukon minute of the week uh one of the interesting things is uh there there is a upcoming territorial election in the yukon so there's a few um uh interesting little tidbits coming out uh, in terms of the campaigning and uh, some of the platforms and obviously mining is is um, a very uh <clears throat> sort of at the forefront of um, what a lot of the discussions are about uh, in terms of land use, uh, First Nations. Uh, so one of the things that came across, um, I guess, uh, early uh, on October 17th was that the CBC ran a, a nice little piece on uh, the Council of Yukon First Nations and some of the questions they had for the the uh, NDP, the Liberal, and the Yukon Party, uh, who are uh, will be uh, locking horns there uh, for the uh, upcoming election. Um and it's it's quite interesting because uh, some of the things that uh, the the gentleman that they quoted in uh, in uh, in the article is Grand Chief Peter Johnston, and he just mentioned a few things, especially in terms of land use, um, and just a little bit, uh, you know, they want a little bit more um, uh, transparency, I guess is the right word in terms of uh, some of the Yukon uh, uh, regulatory uh, processes and things like that. And they also said they would really like to avoid court, which I think we all would. That's that's definitely something we're uh, we're all looking to avoid. So. Uh, an interesting one, something to pay attention to up in the UK because there is an election coming up. Uh, so, so do surf by. Uh, we'll probably do a little bit of coverage on that as it uh, as it evolves as a story, uh, possibly an editorial or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So do uh, do head over and uh, check out some of the uh, some of the discussions the uh, different parties are putting forth in the candidates for the uh, upcoming territorial election in the Yukon because uh, it definitely will have uh, have some um, some bearing on investments and uh, mining companies and everyone's going to have a little 
bit of a say. So it'll be an interesting discussion on, uh, the, you know, the future sort of regulatory regimes and uh, the approach to mining that the territory takes. So that's just an interesting one. There was, uh, yeah, the uh, check out uh, the article, the Council of Yukon First Nations had some uh, comments on the upcoming election. Um, and then, yeah, to just to uh, wrap up here, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, last week, uh, uh, PwC put out their junior mining sort of annual report, and, and they uh, they titled it Signs of Life. Uh, so it, it, it was a little bit optimistic, um, and I had a chance to uh, interview uh, the PwC National Canadian Mining Leader, uh, Liam Fitzgerald, and we just had a quick chat about uh, some of the underlying trends in uh, the, the TSX venture market. So uh, specifically, this report looks at the top 100 mining companies on the venture, so that's in terms of market capitalization or market value. So it's not sort of a deep dive into some of the lower lower market capped uh, companies. It's more so a look at some of the um, the higher value companies and sort of what kind of trends they have in terms of valuation, cash position, and things like that. Um, so what PwC found was that the market capitalization of these top 100 companies surged 138% year on year. Uh, and that's to $11.4 billion Canadian at the end of June. That's compared to just $4.8 billion last year at this time. Um, so things have been going pretty well. And one of the things they noticed, they have a, a kind of a cool graph. Uh, I definitely recommend checking out the report. It's got some uh, really interesting insights in it. But one of the things that they do is, is they looked at how it was broken down per stage. So development stage, exploration stage, and production stage companies. And exploration... Um, was the biggest sort of beneficiary of this uh, quote-unquote rally. Um, the report found that 63 exploration companies on the list jumped 154% year-on-year, while uh, uh, issuers, so uh, stock issuers focused on development stage assets, enjoyed an aggregate gain of 124%, uh, while production companies demonstrated 67% growth in market value. So it's interesting. I mean, it, it, it makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, uh, exploration is by far shows the greatest uh, tie to general market uh, sentiments. And so as soon as people, they're the, as we say, the first to sell off and the, the last to come back. So the, the rate of fluctuation would demonstrate a greater recovery due to the fact they had simply been sold off more than some of the companies that had firmer, let's say, production stage or development stage assets. As soon as something has, let's say, a preliminary economic assessment or a pre-feasibility study, it's a heck of a lot easier to value than a piece of greenfield land uh, where you're looking at a, a market cap and you're saying, well, what, what, what is that valued on? Um, so anytime the market goes down, you see... Um Companies with uh, demonstrable value assets sort of uh, hold their value a bit better than a more speculative uh, stock. So you've seen that sort of swing. So we've seen the exploration bunt back, uh, jump back quite a bit. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting, we always talk about the availability of equity financing. So the availability of, be it bought deals, private placements, etc. Um, like we've heard a lot of narrative over the past, let's say two years about how it's been difficult for especially smaller capitalization companies to access equity capital on the venture. Um, and we've heard a lot of discussions on, on rejigging the regulatory regimes and, and all sorts of red tape talk and stuff like that. But what PwC found was that the ability to go to the market for funds remained steady over the past 12 months, but the participation of junior level companies increased significantly. So cash flows from financing activities rose 89% to 1.2 billion. Uh, this is amongst those top 100 mining companies on the venture exchange. They raised 763 million through equity financings and the remainder through debt. Um, 
So that's about 500 million in debt. Uh, five or yeah, 500 million in debt. Um, and but the the report does note that four companies essentially uh, dominated junior financing activities, and that's Integra Gold. Uh, we know they have the Lamoc project uh, in Quebec. They raised 61 million uh, during the reporting period. Gold Reserve, which had a uh, international arbitration situation uh, resolved, uh, raised 57 million. Kennedy Diamonds, which uh, has the Kennedy North project um, near Gatchuque, I believe, raised 52 million. And Roxgold, uh, who is located in Burkina Faso and is about to hit commercial production or just recently has raised $46 million. Um, and uh, Liam Fitzgerald, the mining leader, also noted that there is some, as companies get larger and they hit production, like say Roxgold, there's a tendency to graduate to the full Toronto Stock Exchange leave the venture. So that has obviously has a impact on, uh, on these sort of statistics. So it's just something to note. So and then one of the other things he said, it's been so heavily driven by gold. Um, gold companies have really dominated sort of this rally. Um, and things like uh, the other one you mentioned, is tying back into our conversation with Simon, was that lithium has also uh, performed quite well over the last uh, 12 months. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes to base metals, uh, this is uh, this is verbatim what Liam Fitzgerald told me. He says, it's a bit hard to get a read on base metals because they are so supply and demand driven. Um, and that's versus uh, gold, which can be sentimental, market sentiment driven. Um, and he says... Uh, it's really difficult to judge when the supply demand dynamic will allow these commodity producers to have a sustainable recovery. And he said, when it comes to base metals like copper, nickel, and zinc, the supply is still there and it's providing a pressure that mutes recovery. So that's sort of some insight into the base metal situation. Hasn't been doing too well. Um, and we, uh, as we've said in a number of times, a lot of the temporal sort of outlooks, a time-based outlooks on, on base metals from the banks and things like that have said, you know, the near term's not looking so great. Uh, you can expect maybe sort of a, a turnaround by 2018, maybe. Um, and then it starts to, the supply demand, demand picture for things like copper and nickel starts to look a bit better as we move into the 2020 areas. Um, so yeah, so that's just a little bit of uh, insight on the uh, PwC report. Uh, do surf by the website. I wrote that up as well as a few more quotes, uh, quotes with Liam Fitzgerald, PwC's Canadian national mining leader. Um, and that's an interesting read, so do check that out. Um, but yeah, that pretty much wraps up our show for the week. Uh, thanks again for joining us. We do appreciate your listenership, and I will talk to you next week.